0: I would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory but always honest truth hidden in the crappier industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries. All in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. Our craft beer badass today is Joe at Hanging Hills Brewery in Connecticut. He's a guy that's been through the ringer. He's lost a best friend to craft beer. He lost money. He was marked for pain and suffering by an internet douchebag. He fought and bled to build his business, only to watch his and die in his arms. But through all that... Joe Plouffe is still a believer. He still wants to make beer and sell it to people. He scraped his shit together, and eight months after his closure, he reopened as a contract brewery. He shares how he restructured his distribution footprint, reworked his recipes, and even hired one of those fancy social media people. In this episode, he shares why he did it and why he believes he's on the pathway to purpose in his life. It's a little early to tell if he'll be more or less profitable than the tired old brick and mortar brewery model. But by the end of my time with Joe, I found myself wanting to believe. He's a great guy who makes great beer, and I appreciate the hell out of everything he shared with us today. So go pour yourself a beer, and let's get to it. So Joe, I want to thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most sure. of all for giving a hairless Aboriginal fuck about helping all of my guests be better in their careers today. So welcome to the show. Yeah. So you started a brick-and-mortar brewery back in like 2016, built it, and you brew it for a few years, and then that closed right at the beginning of COVID, like, yeah. like March 2020? I want to get through that. I want to really talk about the whole concept there. But then I also am hoping to prove my current hypothesis that uh, contract brewing, particularly under 10,000 barrels, is really the only key to profitability. And so you're either going to help me prove or disprove that. And so I appreciate that as well. But first, I want to hear your story. Like what got you started? How did the, the first Hanging Hills come about? Who the fuck are you? Like, Tell us who you are. (laughs) Thanks.
1: Like many people our age, I'm assuming we're within a couple of years of each other. I'm 41. 44. uh, Got into beer kind of at the tail end of the aughts collapse of craft beer. I was living on the West Coast. I was teaching with uh, the woman who would become my wife, who is an amazing teacher. She's a saint. She really believes in the mission. And I'm whatever the opposite of that is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, and like my my belief was such that the education, if your heart isn't fully in it, you really should leave it because it requires like a compassionate, caring person who wants to go the extra mile. And if you don't leave it, you just end up one of those old guys who throw martyrs at students until you retire because you have job protection. And I didn't necessarily want to become a marker thrower and i would complain about my job and my girlfriend who'd become my wife was just like dude just stop bitching about it and do something about it and i'm like all right i make fifty thousand dollars a year what the hell am i gonna do and so i started sending out resumes to every brewery i was living in portland at the time within 50 miles of our house and i couldn't get a sniff back from anybody. And I wasn't in the industry. So I didn't know anyone and I wasn't bartending. So I didn't have those connections. And I was just hoping like an email inquiry would lead to something. So after a couple of months, I finally got a call back from this company out in St. Helens, Oregon called Captured by Porches, who were kind of like this Willy Wonka brewery, totally scrapped together, old tuna equipment, dairy equipment, like Everything was piecemealed together by hand. You know, just like that hard hardscrabble story that I think was rife in our industry in in the 2000s. It was like guys and gals, mostly guys, who would scrap together a brewery with $20,000. And it would work. And, I think even Sierra Nevada did that, technically. You know, I look at Ken Grossman. That dude, like, hand drilled 10,000 holes into, like, a four-inch steel plate to yeah. have a, a louder system in his brew house. So, like, all of these guys were cobbling together... Their breweries I mean there weren't even that many manufacturers who were making 10 barrel, 15 barrel, 20 barrel brew houses. I mean there was pub systems and I think like DME was around and but they were so prohibitively expensive at the time that you did what you had to do and that's sort of what captured by Porters was and it was run by this anarchist punk who was in his 40s at the time. I love Dylan. I hope he listens to this. I don't know if he will, but I love that dude and he had, I mean like now it's cool, but then it was just weird. He had a school bus that he would park at the farmer's market on Salvi Island, and he would sell his beer off of this school bus. <laughs> and I don't know if it was legal. Like, I hope he doesn't run a afoul by me telling a story. But like, you know, Oregon had this law where like, if it's mobile, it's not legal. So he would like chalk the tires and make it so that it couldn't oh, move. Oh, that's good. Like, I like that. Yeah, he would do all these things where like he would just skirt the legality, but all of his... Beers were um, naturally carbonated. He didn't have a spunding system, but he would, you know, make it happen. He would just relieve pressure on his fermenters, like, when he had to. Oh, really? Yeah. And he had re- re- reusable bottles, and he would bring them to these grocery stores and package stores across Portland and like, Multnomah County. And it was beautiful. Like my job there when he finally got back was to take the swing tops off and the rubber gaskets and then hand wash all the bottles and sanitize the swing tops and the rubber gaskets and then reapply them. After like a shift of like eight hours, my knuckles would just be like shredded hot mess. That is a pain in the ass getting in those things. And (laughs) yeah, I went from like never having once made an all grain beer. I was just doing DME and, and liquid at home on the stove to like actually making a beer and he taught me how to mash in and I made a porter which at the time was a sellable product
0: <laughs> and there's commentary on the industry my how it's changed yeah, right
1: it was called cuddly panda porter like as soon as you started distributing it I like I went to this grocery store called new seasons and I like stood underneath it and had my wife take a picture and it felt it literally felt like getting a song on the radio like
0: right uh you were famous you know, at that was, point
1: or, or like in my own head i was a hero to myself because i had accomplished something you know it was like a really big deal and so i wanted to further that feeling into a career i applied to and was accepted to the american brewers guild out of middlebury vermont Other which of the was country for you at that point yeah but my wife my wife was already like she's from uh connecticut and she was missing her family. You know, it was like, if we're going to move back, can I do the Brewer's Guild? And she was like, I don't care. Just stop complaining about teaching. <laughs> so I went and I, I got waitlisted for three years, but then they bumped it up a year. I took the spot. The one thing I miss about those early days was that feeling of like these tiny successes, like having like these huge impacts on my overall happiness. Like, I know that sounds like cheesy as fuck, but like when they bumped up my acceptance by a year, I had like won the lottery. I called Elizabeth over. I said, like, "You have to look at this. They're letting me in a year early. This is gonna be the best fucking year of my life. I'm gonna go to beer school. I'm gonna intern." Wherever. At the time, I was trying to intern at Ninkasi. It was such a huge weight was lifted off my shoulder because I was now going to be like a, a trained brewer. So I did the Brewers Guild. Uh, I learned a ton of stuff that I had no. I'd filtering like Dylan didn't. I didn't even know what a filter was for. <laughs> a sock filter. What the fuck is a sock filter? And these lenticular filter like that just sounds like a made-up term like whatever and then i interned at harpoon like i said i had only made one all grain beer seriously up into that point like i didn't know anything about making beer and then i go to harpoon who was probably top three largest brewery in new england at the time to intern they put me in the lab then they had me extracting Alpha acids from finished product, and and like you know, determining real IBUs through a GC, a gas chromatograph. They had me doing like DO tests, and like they actually had me doing some real hands-on stuff, and it was incredible. It was like eye-opening. Go from like Dylan, who I said was like you know naturally carbonating his beer on this Rand Shackle brewery, to a processing plant where they were doing real QA QC procedure. And then I began to understand that, like, making beer wasn't just about craft and artisanry. It was like, you know, it's a real career. It's a real serious science that involves a lot of money. So I did that for five weeks. Did some, you know, they put me on their bottling line, which I don't know if you've ever worked on a, well, you you filled bottles before. Did you, did you guys have, like, a Maheen or something?
0: Yeah, we had a 6 head Maheen, but... Nothing
1: like what they were using, I'm sure. It's deafeningly loud. like just these, these bottles going through a twist rinse and it's ching, 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 ching mm. for like you know, 10 to 12 hours a day. I realized that I didn't want to do that. Like I, I, like I wanted to make beer more craftsman side than that side because it just seemed like running a plant, you know? Yeah, not not creative or interesting and I think those are
0: cool and definitely after so I'm I'm definitely more Dylan's side is where my brewery was where we I just I love the inconsistency the you know, the labels didn't match I thought that was fun like I just the art of I want to make something I make it today and I may, I may never make it again. There's also the balance between that model. I don't think is economically viable. So yeah, you know.
1: that's what I was to respond with. Realize <laughs> yeah. quickly, like it makes more sense financially to be able to repeat these processes over and over again. Yeah, yeah. and as we'll talk about later, your distributors got to have that.
0: They won't. They just don't. They can't understand it if it doesn't. And yeah, just all of it had. You need to be more like Harpoon than me or Dylan, maybe, I guess, to an extent. But yeah.
1: It's interesting, though, you know, you say that and this is kind of like a sidebar, but like the people who are still in this industry from like 30 years ago who didn't grow up to be Sierra Nevada or Deschutes, who still somehow run small operations, there is still a decent amount of artisanry. Like I, I think of uh, Moonlight Brewing in NorCal and like his beer's are some of the best in the world, you know, widely lauded to be one of the best lager producers in the United States. And I like toast guys like like him just because he found a way to do the thing that I the thing that you and I I think share in common, which is like making something that you deeply, deeply believe in on this tiny, tiny scale, which was what got me into beer to begin with, was that feeling of like deeply believing in something which I had never felt in my entire life before owning a brewery. And so I graduated from beer school, finished harpoon. And luckily found a job that started uh, two days after I got married. My wife was, she was super supportive and like we had sort of made it so that we weren't going to do our honeymoon to the following year. And she was like, as long as you give me a weekend in Vermont for like, you know, like three days, like where we can just spend time together, then we can do our honeymoon the following year. I just want you to pursue this. So, so I got a job at Back East Brewing in um, Bloomfield, Connecticut, commuting down from Northampton every day. And they put me right in cellar. Transferring between vessels, which, you know, I'd done sort of at Harpoon, but like it was more of like stand here and don't touch anything at Harpoon to like. Yeah, every brewer's dream. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To transfer, you know, putting head pressure on the fermenter and transferring over to the bride. At the time, they weren't canning, they were hand filling half gallon growlers with Blickman beer guns. There was a spate of not a nominal amount of, of New England breweries whose primary distribution was half-gallon growlers to grocery stores. they okay, uh, would sell them to grocery stores? I, this is oh, not well, something out? I've heard of. <laughs> so there's this one company, Berkshire Brewing. I don't think they do it anymore. I think they, they bottle and can all their products now. They, at the time, when I was living in Northampton, they were doing 22,000 barrels of beer. And they had a huge draft footprint. But in every grocery store uh, between Connecticut and Massachusetts, they had tens of hand-filled growlers. Huh. At Back East, started off with that model too. And so my job was transferring liquids. The brewer at the time would not let me touch the brew deck, which you know, makes perfect sense. I remember being frustrated with it. But like now that I own a brewery, you're like, oh, yeah, you want to train these people so they understand all of the industry from the bottom up. I was filling growlers for eight to 10 hours a day, usually on Fridays, but also sometimes Thursdays. Also, same process with 750 milliliter bottles for their Imperial Stout. (laughs) We did 10 barrels of that and... I think we put maybe three about three barrels in kegs, and seven barrels went in in these 750s. All hand labeled. I never really got bored. Like I still wanted to do that, no matter how repetitive it was, how cold my hands got. I would get these like pains in my hands from tightening caps over and over again. You know, I I didn't get sick of it. We did that, and uh, got to the point
0: that we actually had to switch stations all the time. So we'd have five people working. Like okay my hands are killing me. You cap, I'm going to fill and that, or I'm sanitizing or whatever because you just, eight hours, you just stand there doing the same shit over and over. That, that'll kill anybody.
1: The Blickman beer gun had this aluminum trigger and you'd squeeze it to, to release the liquid into the bottles and after a few hundred of them, you would develop I would, I don't know if you would, maybe your hands are more tougher than mine, but I would get this bruise on my trigger figure from squeezing this cold aluminum over and over and then like having to hold the pressure down for like hundreds of times. But like I said, like I, I didn't get bored. I liked it. I, I got to drink beers for free. Uh, it was a really cool camaraderie in the brewery. And then we hired somebody and I got to train him and it was kind of really spiritually and like professionally uplifting to like know that my skill set was being passed on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. but I got offered a head brewer job six months after at this place, this brew pub in um, Granby, Connecticut. You can tell me if I'm talking too long, by the way, but I I tend to go off. We
0: we actually don't have a topic on the podcast other than just the story, so it goes where it goes, but I do want to ask, since obviously
1: you had a career, did you always want to own your own brewery? Yes, and so that's, so when I tell you about this guy, it like led to opening the brewery. Okay. One of the parts of your book, you talk about how the seller guy who thinks he could do better than the head brewer or whatever. Yeah. I didn't think that I could make better beer than Mike Smith. The guy trained me at back East. I just knew that I wanted to make it for myself. And so I got this job, very short lasted job. The guy who owns that company and I hated each other from the first (laughs) week. What'd you do to him? I don't know what I did to him per se, but I know that my work ethic started to lag after like putting up with his shit for so long. Mm -hmm. Like I was just start showing up whenever. And uh he he had these like rules that like the brewer has to be there from like 9 a.m to 5 p.m every day but you're not allowed to collect overtime. uh, uh that kind of shit's just stupid like yeah yeah it's <laughs> so, like and then the, a couple of times i had to because there was like mishaps in the brewery like the steam jacket stopped working or like the mill just was an ancient and had crushed 10 bazillion pounds of grains. And like those things break Mm -hmm. and as they break, they add three hours, four hours, sometimes eight hours to your day. Then he would be like, well, you can't come in on Friday because you can't have overtime. And I'd be like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Like this beer has to get transferred off the yeast on Friday. And like the whole week is like our lives as brewers are scheduled around yeast. Yeah, whenever it's done. It's, that's the main employee of the whole place. <laughs> and so after a few months of that, he also believed that CO2 wasn't necessary to transfer liquids, uh, to transfer beer from a fermented to a bright tank. So he's turned off the CO2 to my brewery. Wow. Uh, when I uh, He didn't like me purging tanks, which I was like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, why do you even have a CO2 tank if you're not going to blow down the tank? He clocked me out once when... Uh, my former head brewer came in to see how I was doing and he was talking to me in the brewery and then I go to clock out at the end of the day and I was already punched out. <laughs> <laughs> I went up to him. I went up to him and I was like, Yo, did you by chance clock me out? Because I always go clock out and I'm already clocked out. And he, I, I swear to fucking God, he pulled his cell phone out of his pocket, put it up to his ear, and looked at me. He's like, Oh, I gotta go, I gotta call. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> he didn't even answer you. He just bolted. Like, at least have the balls to answer it on the way out,
1: right? Like, yeah, fuck you. You were talking. And so I, I like, tried to quit. And I go in his office. And I sit down. And I'm like, I can't work here. Like, this sucks. Like, we don't like each other. My work ethic sucks. I'm not learning anything about beer. And I'm turning into an asshole working for you. He started crying. Now all of a sudden and he has like, emotion and cares. And You're my brewer, man. Like, you can't leave. I left, like second-guessing myself. I'm like, all right, fine. I'm going to give this one more chance. And then two weeks later, he called me into his office and fired me. <laughs> and it turns out, <laughs> I, I can't prove this, but it turns out he had like found somebody to replace me, but he had to wait for that person's two-week notice. Oh, to right. Go in. So he couldn't have nobody, <laughs> but he still didn't want you, but he couldn't have nobody for two weeks. So <laughs> that was the final straw. I took the next year to write the business plan. I worked at Whole Foods in the beer department. Uh, We had a kid. I met this guy, Brian Cox, in beer school. We did a week in Sacramento together with like 17 other dudes in a house the week we graduated from the Brewers Guild. And he and I had stayed in touch, and we both had a lot of similar interests uh, in what we wanted to do for beer. But he and I, neither one of us were kind of business-oriented people. So we, we met this other person who was connected to us, this guy, Scott Stauffer, who at the time was like vice president of new business for an insurance company in downtown Hartford. But Hartford's like the insurance capital of new england so he kind of set us straight he fine-tuned my business plan and we started fundraising we applied for and received uh, an sba loan through an arm here in connecticut called Headco. we did a kickstarter a successful kickstarter remember kickstarter
0: <laughs> yeah so actually, i was gonna <laughs> ask you about that because i saw it somewhere i think when i looked back through your facebook or whatever but so did it work you raised a successful amount of money more than the price of the t-shirts you were giving away or whatever at the time
1: yeah, we, yeah well that was another thing we didn't actually uh, didn't take into account was like how much the merch was gonna cost us and then we were like putting together all these packages and we we're like that was really dumb of us because
0: <laughs> it sounds good on paper <laughs> but we didn't make any money yeah <laughs> But you made some, and then you got, of course, fans. So that was
1: uh, a big. But we raised twenty-seven thousand dollars. We tried to raise twenty-five. We raised twenty-seven. Kickstarter takes their cut, and then it's like twenty-one, and then you know you take in the merch into account, and then, like all of a sudden you're looking at, like you know fourteen thousand. But still, we were successful, and we built out the brewery for just over seven hundred thousand dollars, including equipment. There was nothing in place infrastructure-wise except the building was powered, uh, and there was natural gas, but everything else had to be had to be routed and uh, plumbed and and built out and that's Um, leased space you guys didn't buy the building too right oh no yeah (laughs) i think that would have been a nightmare separating at the end of when we closed down if we owned the building but oh uh, yeah we leased the space and our first weekend we had we had been planning on being open friday and saturday the first week and then the local newspaper ran this story that we were going to be open like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Like, we didn't tell them that. (laughs) And so we ended up having to like change all of our our hours and shit. But like, we had a line out the door on the first day. We did like, I think to this day, it was like our best single sales day. Uh, It was like $8,000 on the first day. It looked like we were going to be hugely successful and
0: so the line sure. out the door is one of those metrics that every new brewery guy uses as a metrics of success right like, like, that's what I want I want to line out the door what do you think contributed to that that's not everybody's storyline right so that's special and interesting and what how did you do it
1: well I think Connecticut at the time we were licensed number let me look LMP 29, uh, 29. we were licensed number 29 that meant that we were the 29th brewery in operation in the state Probably 10 to 12 of those preceding us had already gone out of business. So really at the time, there was only like 17 operating breweries in the state. And craft beer was exploding everywhere except Connecticut at the time. (laughs) This is 2016, right? Yeah, this is 2016. And like, don't get me wrong, like there were breweries and they were producing world-class shit. It's just like there wasn't like this huge uptick just yet. And so anytime a brewery opened their doors, people were looking to find the next the brewery that was going to make the next treehouse style beer right we were all kind of riding that comet you know trillium less or so but everybody wanted some treehouse style beer so when they lined up they're like this is gonna be the next treehouse you guys are gonna be the next treehouse and we weren't even trying to be the next treehouse that's a lot of pressure like we, yeah but it is so much pressure and they weren't even open with their newest facility yet like they had I think they had just transferred over from their smallest facility to their Munson facility, which you know was still pretty big compared to where we were. But like, like the pressure that the shadow that they cast in New England, especially at the time, was was huge. Like it was helpful in some ways, but also insurmountable in others. If you weren't making that beer, then you weren't trying to make good beer.
0: Well, we had that issue with you know being in the shadow of Jester King that we made mixed culture beer. And it would always, not always, but more often than it should have been, it was judged as either Jester King quality or not. You know, it's like <laughs> this. This is no Jester King. I'm like, well, of course it's not. I didn't fucking make the same beer they made. In some ways, it's better and different, but they, you know, that was the paradigm. And,
1: and so it can it can be a negative as much as a positive. For sure. The following weekend, you know, it was crickets because really? we didn't. I think we probably did a thousand dollars. Total for the four days that we were open, but we had always planned on being a distribution brewery. So we're like, well, our tasting room is just there supplemental income. We're going to grow. It's like the stupidest fucking mindset. Like we're going to make enough money to stay open as a ten barrel ten barrel distribution brewery. Like, no, you're not. (laughs) That's just not going to happen. You can't distribute as ten barrels without taking on additional debt and stay open. It's just not a reality. And it was like. I don't know. You just kind of get through this like fog of war, which where you convince yourself all kinds of things that are absolutely untrue. And I think some of it is you see it happening.
0: And the biggest, I'm going to give you one of my soapbox speeches for the day. But I personally believe that one of the reasons I started this podcast and I wrote the book is that the fundamental storyline being pitched by the beer media and brewer association, everybody, is that everything's great, everybody's profitable, we're all growing. Jump on the wagon, let's have some fun and drink some fucking beer for the afternoon. And the reality is, you may have more friends. I'm sure you have more friends in the industry than I do. Put it that way, but I don't personally know anyone who's profitable.
1: One of my favorite breweries in Connecticut. They make like top notch lagers. Their flagship IPA is a hazy, so I, I know that they're at least throwing two pounds per barrel into it. But it, it's on the shelf for nine ninety nine. I do the math on my own stuff and I like in order for us to generate profit on that, we're talking razor thin margins. Uh, and they are probably, I don't know, uh, 15,000 barrels of beer now, but they weren't, you know, they, they went from 900 to 2000, but at no point could they have possibly been profitable at that price point. If that is their lead dog, like the cost to produce it overhead, to move it, giving it to your distributor to take thirty percent off of—it's just like the math just never worked out. And so I, I always wondered like how, one, how they did it. So God bless them. But then also, I see breweries that are substantially smaller with almost zero distribution footprint who are doing a thousand dollars on a Saturday, and I'm like, how are you still open? Like, what are you, what are you doing that keeps you still open? Because I know that the profitability. Is such that you have to sell huge swaths of beer directly to the consumer in order to stay open.
0: Yeah. And even then, based on your rent, if you're in a good enough location to get the traffic, and then what you if you have a taproom manager, is there an assistant taproom? There's so many ways to burn the cash that even if you're making 900 bucks a barrel, you can eat that shit up really easily with just not knowing how to run your business right. Which I know there's a lot of people that don't.
1: So, <laughs> that way. and you have gotta market it. I mean, marketing is expensive as hell,
0: mm-hmm. especially to do it effectively. And then you know to know what works and what doesn't. There's so many things out there. It's hard, and that is absolutely one of the things I'm trying to figure out throughout this podcast. Is like what works, what doesn't, and tell an honest story because there's at least one of those publications who went through and looked at this story and told me that it wouldn't be interesting to other brewery owners. Because we all already know
1: that it's too hard
0: to run a brewery. Why do we want to talk about
1: it? <laughs> I think that's kind of cynical to think. One good thing that came out of COVID, this is kind of an analogy I'm going to make here, but like one good thing that came out of COVID is that people feel much more comfortable to talk about mental health issues, right? Like everyone's like, well, yeah. oh, I'm depressed, I have anxiety, all, you know, like, and it's not, you're not a pariah anymore. It's like, so am I depressed? <laughs> you know? and, and I think that what the podcast like yours does is like it validates when you see other people being what appears to be on the surface, like deeply successful. And you're like, how are they doing this? And I can't like hearing other people's stories validates that like, oh, well, maybe it isn't just me. Maybe this shit is hard financially. It's not hard to make beer. It's not hard to make good beer. But from a financial point of view, it's almost impossible to be profitable. I mean, you just take on debt forever.
0: Yeah. So the guys you know that are successful, like, are the ones that sold out. I truly fundamentally believe that they burn capital to get to that buyout. And so at the point of the buyout, you know, they finally get paid back for all the debt and overhead they've taken in. But yeah, if you don't make it there, you're fucked. That's why you go out of business. Which is probably similar to what happened to Bridge, Bridgeport, and I haven't had a chance to really interview those guys. Um, I have reached out, but same thing. Like they were nationwide, and then all of a sudden, gone. And there's got to be that kind of story with that too.
1: I remember uh, when it what 2011 or so when Goose sold to AB. There's obviously issues to selling out. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to condone it. I remember the founder uh, being presented with this conundrum, which was in order for him. To make a volume of beer that would be profitable, he would have to take out some huge number in loans. And he looked at it like I'm – I think he was in his late 50s at the time. What's he going to do? He's going to stay in beer yeah. until he's 80 to pay off these loans? With these rates uh, within
0: margins and if anything happens, it drags it out. And
1: yeah. I mean look at the beers that Goose was producing at the time too. I mean like yes, there's Bourbon County, but that's a single-day release. Three, three, one, two and uh, honkers goose ipa like none of those can be sold for 15.99 a six-pack right you know it's not like he can suddenly jack up the margins on that shit and so he was stuck at this like perpetuating debt acquisition somebody came up to hang hills on day two and was like you know here's five million dollars walk away i may have been foolish enough to say no i'm gonna make this work but if (laughs) six months afterwards they had offered us five million bucks i would have been like I'll take two and a half, but cool, man. I'll, like, give me your five. You yeah. know, like, this shit's hard.
0: I uh, I walked away from my entire brewery after nine years for like two hundred grand because I was just like, just give me something. I just I got to get the fuck out of here, um, and I don't know if I can make it six more months anyway. So at that point, I was thrilled to take a seven hundred thousand dollar loss just to get out. But, <laughs> yeah. mm.
1: uh, there are breweries here in Connecticut who have somehow. I wouldn't say somehow. They've been able to convince people that paying sixteen ninety nine for their six and a half percent IPA is a valid consumer decision and that you should avoid buying a twelve ninety nine IPA, which might actually be substantial better in quality. And I don't know how they've managed to do that. Like they have somehow <laughs> done some juju. If you can convince people to pay sixteen ninety nine for a four pack sixteen ounce cans, you're certainly you're looking at a much better math.
0: Yeah, that um, that can work, unless of course you're mobile canning, and there's ways to still fuck that up. But yeah, um, oh, we we were mobile canning. <laughs> I didn't I didn't get to that part of the story yet, but yes. Um, in fact, you I know have
1: what? More money out the door.
0: Let's let's do that. Let's let's pick on the brick and mortar model here for a second, but first let's take a quick break. I think yeah. I was actually waiting to have one of the beers you sent me until the second oh, cool. section, so I think it's time. So uh, let's take a quick break. I'm gonna go grab a beer. We'll come back, and I want to take a big st- steaming shit all over brick and mortar business models. <laughs> <laughs> so we be right back. Before the late '90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A. Pay attention in class, B. Know somebody who knew, or C. Look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time, web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. So seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and I will truly thank you. Welcome back. I did manage to get a beer, and I did manage to get one of yours. And so since you are the expert, I will ask you to tell the listeners what Metacomet is.
1: I'll tell you, it's a two-part thing. Metacomet, as a person, was an original American badass. That motherfucker. And then it's also a trail. Runs through Connecticut and Massachusetts, named in honor of that guy. So, I wanted to make a beer that I felt truly represented him as a person without diving too deeply into the like cultural appropriation. I don't want to put any like headdresses or like Indian feathers, dream catchers on the label because <laughs> whatever, that's just fucking dick. So, I made a West Coast IPA. That beer didn't start off as a West Coast IPA, it was a lot of crystal malt back before people thought hazies meant New England. We used to have a bunch of breweries that were sweet, who made IPAs that were sweet slightly bitter and so it kind of was caught between that world and the west coast world as i've rebranded the company as a contract brand i turned it into a 100 west coast ipa both to differentiate it from the rest of my catalog but also because on a personal level i like west coast ipas better than i like new england ipas and so i took I don't know, a bunch of alesmith some red chair from Deschutes, and some other really awesome west coast ipa brewers and realized that you can make something that's both hop bitter hop flavorful and very aromatic without making it bracingly bitter like what stone has been famous for doing for years (laughs) so metacomet to me is the ideal west coast ipa there's citra there's eldorado lots of grapefruit lots of like grapefruit tannins a wonderful kind of juicy fruit fruitiness to it without it being sweet or cloying i dried out the beer so it's you know it's got like i mashed in a 149 it is, to me, the ideal of what uh, Alesmith has been able to do for 20 years now. So that's what I call it. It's a great beer.
0: It's funny. I always tell people that I'm not an IPA guy. I than... sent
1: you a bunch of IPA.
0: <laughs> well, so I, it's just, there's a caveat to this. And, and I'm not an empirical IPA guy in the sense that, like, I rarely will order an IPA at a bar. If you have one at your house, if you've got a Pilsner, I'm almost always going to take that instead. But it's because when I first started drinking IPAs, I enjoyed them. I live in Texas, and if you haven't had the opportunity to drink most of the beer in Texas, I recommend if you get that opportunity that you do not fucking take it. We, as a state, (laughs) don't produce some of the best beer in the country. And it just, we're young. It's just, the industry's got some time to go and whatever. But, long story short, a lot of the beers that I get around that are IPAs now, they're not balanced. Um, They're typically overly bitter and chalky bitter. So, you've got you know just cheap, cheap and inexperienced guys making the products. And so, I don't like... The standard IPA. I do like. So, what I had from you the other night was your hazy.
1: Oh, Halamata, six yeah. and a half percent.
0: Yeah, and I liked both of those. They were both great. They were balanced. Um, they had like that almost like graininess on the back end that gave it just an interesting character, but not overly bitter. And and it's the same thing. It's bitter, but in a pleasant way. So good job. I do like this IPA. It makes me laugh. I say this all the time whenever I drink someone's IPAs that are good, but I'm not an IPA guy, but I like your IPA. So
1: Oh, well, I appreciate yeah. that. There's a guy in Seattle. He owns Cloudburst Brewing, Steve Luke. He preceded me actually at Cambridge House. So we have a, a, a mutual boss in common, as it turns out. Uh, he was the guy who, who took, clocked me out. And so I've connected with him over DM and shit like that. And he has this philosophy that like to make a, a high-quality IPA, you should be building hop structure and not necessarily overkill it with dry hop which is what a lot of new england hazy brewers try to do is they think that the most flavor extraction you're going to get and the least bitterness you're going to get is the target and what ends up happening is that thing you just described where you get this bracing hop burn down the back of your throat from all that chlorophyll all that green matter that's in the in the hop and i personally think that that's a humongous turn off law in the beer like just because it's hazy doesn't make it like a good a well-produced beer
0: yeah there's more to it for uh, sure and, and again for me balance is primary i can go through all different kinds of flavors as long as there's stuff in balance but once it's intentionally out of balance or just you know it does have some flaws in there that are noticeable I'm just done. Like, I, at this point, I'm too old. Like, I'm not going to drink your beer just because you poured it. I, I will send it back and order something different. I'm happy that I don't have to put this back in the uh, container and send it all the way back to Connecticut. But appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I actually – the of all the beers that we produce, you know, are untapped and tells me what the customer is like. But of the beers that we produce that I'm most proud of, one of them is the one you're drinking currently, Metacomet. Because it is – it's what I – Personally, have it's like the platonic ideal of what I'm trying to drink when I drink an IPA. And our Pilsner Hills Pills, which I didn't have any to ship down to I'm really sorry. I'll I'll remedy that in the next couple of weeks when we produce <laughs> a fresh bag I hold you to that. <laughs> Both of those beers, when we brewed them at ledyard Street, were very different than what they have become in the last year and a half. Uh, Hills Pills was Brian Cox's a very very well produced Pilsner, uh, but it had Vienna malt. He was. A big fan of throwing Cascade in and in, in late edition, so like 15 and in Whirlpool, and it was very well received. Was, I, and this is not to disparage that beer at all, but when I took over the company, my my primary goal was to redesign both of those beers to be what both what I wanted, and also for the pilsner to be much more Germanic. And so the Hills Pils is now only pilsner malt, and it is only Saphir hops, and so you know like German malts and German hops. And it's naturally carbonated now, which it wasn't before. Now, drinking it now is a much more pleasant drinking experience for me because they're like, I I don't know, like some of these guys, I don't know if if they're taking kudos from Untapped and what the public is saying about their beers. But like me personally, like I'm happy with it at the end of the day. Then that's more important to me. And I know that's a shitty business model. I drink Metacombinant and Hills Pills and I'm like, I fucking made this beer and I'm real happy.
0: For it. Again, I have many soapboxes, but this is one. And I think that untapped has systematically destroyed the industry. And that's one of the reasons that to be successful, you ultimately have to cultivate the uh, fandom of those douchebags who are online, who don't know what the fuck they're talking about, but that are so you know adamant about talking about it. I think it has ruined the industry. And I, I long for the day that I don't think it'll ever go away, but that we can evolve past it. That would be fantastic.
1: I think that we were talking about before, with with Moonlight Brewing, that guy—I'm blanking on his last name. His first name is Brian. He has somehow cultured his brand to be a brand that doesn't give a fuck about untapped. I mean, his untapped scores are probably tremendous because he makes world-class beers, but like he doesn't cater his beers to getting a better untapped rating. Which there's a huge distinction there. I see. There's so many breweries. I mean, Connecticut, much like Texas, is a newly developing craft beer community if you are trying to make a name for yourself and doing so indirectly is by having a high on tap rating you put out slushy beers you put out hop burn overly dry hop hazy ipas you you know you you cater specifically to what people are immediately going to overrate on on untapped stouts that taste like brownies (laughs) like yeah pastry stouts And like and like don't get me wrong like i will drink those too i won't order them at a bar because i want to enjoy every sip of something that i'm paying a premium for but i'll drink them especially if you bring them over to my house and and i'll compliment them on their virtues but at the end of the day like like fuck those beers like fuck them like uh, they suck like they and and like it sucks that you willed your your brewery this thing that you started from a passion into something that is completely devoid of passion and it's pursuing untapped ratings and financial windfall like it just sucks it, it, it is a fucking bad model i don't think that those
0: guys are profitable either and so at some point they're <laughs> cultivating the pop- popularity to make a product that is even more expensive and has a worse margin so at the, i don't i don't know that these guys are necessarily bringing home the cash either but they're definitely getting more attention
1: they're getting a lot of attention i think that you're not going to become a millionaire overnight but if you can figure out a way to you know sell every single drop Every can and every pint directly to the consumer of a particular handful of beers a couple times throughout the year, you can increase your margins to the point where you are showing profit. Mm-hmm. And that, because that is the primary driver, you end up with beers that like that don't impress you or myself or like probably a shit ton of breweries. Like I don't think Ken Grossman goes home at night and is like, "I can't wait to drink this veil vale beer." Like, <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, like I, I just. Don't think that that I mean, he, he's probably, you know, respective of its quality for what it is and, and can acknowledge that the person put a lot of time and effort into producing it. But like, I want to drink Rothouse Pills. I want to drink Alesmith. I want to drink Deschutes. I want to drink, you know, Great Lakes all fucking day.
0: The interview that comes out next week actually is with um, a guy here in Texas that went out of business. Well, Technically, he got kicked. He got kicked out of his brewery and then it went out of business after he left. And he loves milkshake IPAs. And I just I let him off the hook this time because I do like Dean, but I'm like fuck you and your milkshake IPAs, dude. Come on.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think they have a place, just like like RTDs um, have a place, and 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 like Seltzer has a place. Like I'm not gonna shit on those segments. I'm not gonna brew those spears or seltzers or milkshake hazy whatever. I think that they have a place, but I also don't think that they necessarily mean that you're a high quality producer of of craft beer and it sucks because at the end of the day we're still businesses you know so you, you like have to make something that is that generates a profit
0: yeah mcdonald's um, is still the largest restaurant chain in the
1: world <laughs> you know? oh man the <laughs> and it, it sucks but i think your theory is correct like if you brew a passion project beer you, you can't find a way that's profitable anymore unless you're brewing at such volume like sierra or deschutes that you can overcome what most brewers under fifteen thousand barrels are producing i don't know it's it's kind of dispiriting on one hand but then kind of also it like takes the handcuffs off too if you can figure out a way to stay open and and not be profitable but just stay open if that's the goal <laughs> just keep getting investors awesome.
0: new investors on board every year <laughs>
1: <clears throat> or just like break even all of the time and never show profit like if you could find a way to break even brewing the beers you love like God bless you, man. Well, so on that
0: note, I promised that we were going to shit on the brick and mortar business model. So let's talk (laughs) about the four years that you were open before you had to close. Now that you're looking back, you've had a year of contract brewing, you've had some success and some some great rebranding. What were the pain points to profitability? Like, what do you think looking back went wrong? So, give some examples. Was, Was the tasting room an issue? Was it distribution? Did you over payroll? did you guys borrow so much that you couldn't afford the debt service or, you know, what, what was, was it mobile canning, which it could have been?
1: I mean, I think if you add all of those up, you get to the answer. We opened up right at the beginning of the shift in consumer behavior. This it's, this is not the primary reason, but it's, it's hugely descriptive. We opened up under the belief that if you built the best mousetrap, people would come knocking down your door to come get it. Um, (laughs) That's actually mistake one in my book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and uh, but there were models that proved that that proved out that theory because there were so few breweries at the time that people were going out of their way to go get your beer. Um, yeah, well you guys had a line so out the we, door when you opened. I mean, that's proof. Right? It was just interesting, yeah, and great. And, but then, within six months of us opening, thirty more breweries opened. Mm-hmm. We were one of the first to open up in 2016. I think there were three three preceding us, and then by the end of 2016. We'd gone from, I think, 21 operating breweries to over 50 in that year alone. And then the last, we're up over 100. There's like 110 now in the state. And we're there's three and a half million people here. Like the entire state of Connecticut can fit in the Houston metro area. Hmm. It's a tiny state. And so the people stopped chasing down the best mousetrap. They started going to the places that were two blocks served a mile, maybe two miles from their house, regardless of quality. I mean, you know, there are obviously guys who are close proximity who are making grape beer, but then there were guys who were not, guys and gals. The proximity factor became a huge driving force. But also we we were talking about before, like the hazies, like if we weren't producing Treehouse on day one or something approximating some analog of Treehouse, then people were just moving on to the next one that was hopefully going to do that. Mm. it took us a year to realize that we had to start giving people what they wanted and we opened our doors up we had a mild on draft we had a pale ale our pale ale ypa was our flagship it was stupidly named beer as yellow pale ale (laughs) but also a pale ale in connecticut was a death sentence like people just don't drink that style here for the most part and we had I-O-P-A, which is India Oat Pale Ale, fucking morons. We just had these terrible, terribly branded products. And then on top of that, we were also making bright beer, and we were offering old school styles that people weren't interested in. We didn't have TVs, and we were in this light industrial neighborhood in the south end of Hartford, a city that last saw you know economic success in the 80s that, was, that has been in a severe financial downturn for decades. A huge blight and and neglect from our local leadership and, and statewide le- leadership, but despite all that, we still did just under four hundred thousand dollars in revenue out of our tasting room in two thousand nineteen. Like we were able to figure it out. Like we, it just took us a year to realize, oh shit, we have to give them a hazy. Like mm-hmm. oh shit, we have to offer like you know we can't put a mild on draft, and we have to start canning our beers, which led to mobile canning. Did you um, bottle before or just doing draft only? We were draft only. Okay. I was self-distributing locally, which was a boon for us. To kind of put what self-distribution was able, allowed us to do, in 2019, I personally sold and self-distributed a volume of beer that last month for the same sales period my distributor had reached 14% of year to date November or 2021. If you looked at July of 2019 and you looked at july of 2021 my distributor had sold 14 percent of that same volume okay. of here so i had developed really good relationships locally uh with a lot of accounts i was selling and we were selling anywhere from 40 to 120 cases every friday out the door directly locally and then another 8 to 20 uh, logs and half barrels that my distributor has never even come close to doing in the same immediate footprint which is you know Fucking nightmare and then <laughs> de- watching watching our downstate we had a downstate distributor at the time who in february of 2019 moved eight CE's total eight? eight CE's. and they would always come back to us like oh you should lower your price oh you should offer this oh you should i mean it was always like nobody nobody wants to drink a hartford beer or like it was always these things that were like hang hills fall and not the fact that they moved eight CEs. So we were never able to grow the brand downstate. And I entrusted that distributor to move the product. And that was a lesson I learned. So that was a failure. And then when you compile all of that, plus lack of financial success, watching your bank account lose $1,000 a month, every month that you're open, and then realizing you need to spend money in order to make money, it really took a toll on the relationships. So Of the partners? Yeah. And Sky and I, I like, I love Scott Stopper. He's like an uncle to me. Like I, I fucking love that dude with all my heart, but he was also not at the brewery every day. He was, and even when he wasn't, when he was at the brewery, he wasn't a hands-on guy. He didn't do any beer pouring. He did a couple of events, but his schedule was such that he wanted to be a hands-off owner, but that left Brian and myself to get at each other's throat every fucking day yeah, for years, especially when times are and, tough. Oh my God, if times are, if times are good, you're just like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to, we're going to put up with each other, you know, but times are tough. And so like, there's just finger pointing all around, like, Oh, it's your fault for this. It's my fault for that, but you're not handling this. And I could point to a million different things that he did and he could point to a million different things that I did. But at the end of the day, we weren't financially successful. So like none of it even mattered anyway. Mm, Right. Um,
0: Well, imagine that, that was your partner and that, that sucked. My partner was my wife uh we are still married to this day which
1: congratulations
0: i think uh and i have told her this i i appreciate that obviously the marriage that we have is very strong because it the
1: brewery tried very hard to kill it and it did not succeed so well that's beautiful and i'm happy for you guys because brian and i have probably spoken less than 10 times since we closed i was in his wedding like we were we were pretty good buddies but like we just the egos like even if you're failing the egos are just like they're still there you know (laughs) you know and i did some really dumb shit that i'm not proud of and i did some shit that i knew worked but couldn't get other people on board for and i'm willing to accept my my responsibility there but that brian announced that he was resigning in january of 2020 this is before we closed and before covid was rampaging the united states really i mean it was like a couple of, a handful of cases but it seemed fairly isolated there was that cruise ship in seattle that was like <laughs> i don't know if you remember that I one and like isolated those people <laughs> and like new york had a couple of cases but like it, it didn't it just seemed like something that was still off in the distance and then on january 20th of 2020 my friends were at a protest in new york and this internet character named Andy Goh was posting their pictures and like alluding to where they could be found and have the shit kicked out of them. Wow. He has 300,000 followers or so. I DM'd him that if he ever walked into my brewery, I would throw a milkshake IPA at his head. And he screencapped it and shared it with <laughs> his 300,000 followers. <laughs> And I didn't share it from my personal account. Like I shared it from the brewery account. And it was something at the time I was like, fuck him. I want to let everyone know that I stand in solidarity with, with so and so. Like, and I don't care. Like, what, what's he going to do? Share it with his 300,000 followers? And that's exactly what he did, which led to some of the worst moments of my personal life. People were emailing my partners. They, you know, they doxed them, as they say. They, uh, posted all these all these right wing websites and like started harassing these people personally calling the brewery threatening to blow up the brewery i got emails from people saying that they hoped that my wife was raped by a big black dick which i was like dude thanks for sharing your fantasies with me you weirdo <laughs> we, we just kept it it just was horrific and like i yes i fucking dm the guy but it like that certainly did not help anything that was happening at hang hills and then closure like the covid happened like for real happened In the United States. We got word from the state, well, from rumors, but that the governor was going to shut down on March 13th, the entire state. On March 12th, we had this all hands on deck meeting. My business partners, Brian was already walking out the door. We were going to hire a replacement for him. I'd actually found a replacement for him, but Scott saw the writing on the wall and, he, and like we had just talked about like we were losing a thousand dollars a month every month and scott was like i don't see a way out of this like at the time nobody knew how long the shutdown was going to last what COVID was going to do to the country we were like well if they shut down for a month can we recover from that if we shut down for two months can we recover and we like figured out to the map that we had three months of rent paying money and that was it and so scott took that as an opportunity was wisely so to Offer to walk away from the company. I was also going to walk away. Uh, we were just going to shut it all down completely. I, I sat on it for a weekend and my wife, you know, kind of cajoled me a little bit. Like she totally understood any decision I made, but she was like, you know, you don't have to. You don't have to close this thing down. And and she knew how much I loved hanging hills. Like, you know, like that story I was telling before about having my beer on the shelf and like having a song on the radio. Like it was my fucking baby. It's the only thing in this world that I'm qualified to do is his own a brewery. And so I kept it going. The race was on between selling the equipment and trying to keep the the, the facility open. So my partners were trying to sell off the equipment while I was also trying to keep it on. So and you guys
0: announced like somewhere around like twentieth of March that you were closing. So this is after that? That you had decided basically yeah, so to retain the brand and do something? Yes,
1: yes. So so to keep you to keep you up to date on the timeline, that was March twentieth, but I was finagling ways to like keep the facility open or ways to to keep the brand alive if if I couldn't keep the brewery open and that ultimately decided that the contract side was the only way it was going to work out in COVID there's just no way I was going to be able to make rent and pay myself and other people more, more importantly employees like to to sell beer out of doors it just wasn't going to work out and so contracting became the only option. So all of that stuff compiled is why Hang Hills went out of business. It's a long convoluted story, but at the end of the day, like your theory goes, there's no way to fucking make money on a 10-barrel system if you're just... Dis- For us, as a distribution model, there's no way to make money. I can't... I don't know if that had if we had only sold directly to consumers, if that would have been different because it just didn't... We never had that opportunity, but... When As a distribution brewery, 10 barrels is a shot in the foot on day one, and you had better hit a home run, and if you don't, you're fucked forever.
0: Well, the hardest part about that one for me winds up being that you are at the mercy of distribution arm at that point, and even if you have oh, yeah. salespeople in the market, they can only do so much, and so it's sure. a struggle to get past that. You know what you're saying. You're starting off behind the eight ball. I I personally think if COVID taught us anything, it's that one channel of your business is not enough. That yes, you've got to have it all and and do it all well,
1: and do it exceptionally well. Like there can be no there be no areas of your business that are lagging. And in order to do that, you either have to be extremely lucky and hit a home run on day one and have it be sustainable, sustainably a home run, or you have to be well financed and be able to take lumps during the harder months and we did neither of those.
0: Well, you had talked about so that you guys were, had recognized you were losing $1,000 a month and that you were going to need to invest money to turn that around. I'm curious, did you have ideas that you felt like with 15 grand, we could have done X and that would have made a difference or hundred grand or, or whatever that is. I'll preface that by saying that I've had what I consider five catastrophic situations in my brewery and each of those required an investment. And each of those did create a pivot that did ultimately make a difference but I'm still sitting here at the end having lost. And so I think ultimately that I would have been better off having done none of those. But I'm curious what your perspective on this.
1: Yeah, I mean, like we had looked at different pivots. So we had kind of, we were exploring a relocation of the brewery while Brian and I were still on speaking terms, although it was becoming strained to open up a a downtown Hartford facility uh, where people were. And we had figured out a model that we think might have worked out we never, we never fully explored it because we never did it. And and part of it was because the relationships were so strained. I honestly don't know if there's anything we could have done differently with the success that we had already had. So if you're asking me this, in, uh, in December of 2019, if we invest $100,000 in a 150 ledger street, would things have been differently? I have ended differently? And I would tell you that I would be $100,000 less and I'd owe somebody more money because there was nothing about that location that was working out. Even if we had had a canning line, like, yes, that would have been an additional X thousand dollars a month that we weren't spending on the mobile, but like there's other costs attributed that I make mean, like, you have to have a canning line operator. Yeah. Uh, well, if the top line on the
0: canning side isn't enough. Then it doesn't justify the expense. And if it's not driving more sales, then it's not going to help.
1: Yeah. Ultimately, if you're not driving more sales, you're not, it doesn't matter. It's a quote. I think I had heard
0: that you, you can't you can't save yourself to profitability. Like if you're just cutting costs to get profitable, <laughs> ultimately that will implode on itself. And I think there's some truth to that. The different perspectives, but there's
1: definitely some truth to that. I, I actually, I think that that is a very apt description. There was no saving what was happening then. And and like that was, that was really hard for me to accept for a long time. Like if, even in like six months ago, if you asked me that, I'm like, oh, I could have fucking done 20 different things and I, we would, we would have been successful. But like now, even, even if COVID had never happened at this stage as a contract brand, there is nothing that was going to resuscitate what was happening down there on Ledger Street. It just wasn't going to work. And, you know, that's a hard lesson to learn. It took me freaking two years and change to really figure out that post-production. Like, I can't even imagine the, 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 if we had stayed open, like, I'd still be delusional about it, you know?
0: You'd still be fighting so, the fight because that's what you do
1: when you're in it. You just kind of well, buckle you down. You the money involved. Mm -hmm. you got time money energy like you're you're like i said you're in this fog of war man it's like i'm convinced that something i do will work out right let's dig into what some of those things would look like
0: um after a quick break and then also since you know since we need a little bit of catharsis let's also shit on distributors when we get back just for fun all right let's take a quick break i
1: love shitting on distributors (laughs) so much
0: (laughs) so do you ride motorcycles Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right. Welcome back. So I appreciate you sharing a lot of that story, man. I, I, there's a lot going on here. And again, I, like I've told you before, this is one of those stories I think that everybody has a varying degree of something similar to it. And it's it's tough to tell the story, but I, I'd hope that the next generation learns from what we're talking about today, right? For sure. But one of the things I really wanted to go into was looking back, you said there really wasn't anything that you could have fixed. So... That being said, you decided to go into the contract brewing model, and what did you see there? Like, what it what coming from the brick and mortar location four years, heart and soul? What did you see with this brewery that you were going to be able to contract brew with that was like, okay, this is how I revive my brand? What was the solution?
1: Uh, man, I actually was unhappy with a lot of what we had been producing in the last two years that we had been open down there. I thought, I still think actually, that both tweaking older brands that we'd had that had had some success as well as putting out new products could rejuvenate Hanging Hills with a brand refresh, hiring a social media director. So I'm, I was convinced that if I just kept it going long enough to be able, I know this is a kind of kind of anti-ethical to, your, to our whole conversation. If I kept it going long enough and could prove success from it, that I can still open up a much smaller, exclusively on-premise brick-and-mortar location. But I, I have visions of this, these breweries. There's a brewery down in Pennsylvania near Lancaster, I think, the, called Bond Place, and it's this funky-ass dive bar-style brewery. They figure it out somehow. They like you know they pay their bills and they're still open and they make really great beer, but they're doing it their way. That's sort of what I see. Like, I I, I envision that Hanging Hills will not be this kind of, like, all-encompassing brand that tries to make everybody happy all the time, which is a major flaw of ours. Uh, Once we figured out that we had to give people what they want, we went full bore with that. But that we open, or that I open, because there's no we anymore, this new brand, I'm sorry, this new brewery with a tightened-up brand with a very specific, dive esque model. I want it to look like a fucking, feel like a dive bar that you're comfortable, that you're home with and still sell beer locally uh, as a distribu as a distributed brand here in Connecticut and then in Rhode Island in February. So that's what I envision. That's like, I, I think that I can maybe won't make a million dollars and then I'll probably make $60,000 a year for the rest of my life. If I'm lucky, I'm, I'm really sorry that I'm blowing up your thesis. Here. Not at all. So <laughs> I, I,
0: and I, I mentioned this before, but I will clarify, I don't have a goal with the podcast other than to find the truth. So I would love nothing more than for you to be able to come back a year later and be like, look, dude, I figured it out. I got the one yeah. business plan that works. That's fantastic. That's a win. I'm not trying to shit on the industry. I'm just trying to pull back but, the honest curtain. So,
1: No, I think, that, I think that your thesis is probably correct. But I also, my favorite band in the entire world is a band called the Drive-By Truckers. They've actually played the Whitewater. Uh, oh, near, yeah? Us? Uh, they played there maybe a year and a half. Uh, it was before COVID It was like right at the Very end of normal life And Patterson Hood Who's the lead singer Primary songwriter uh, I go down to see the band Every year Down in Athens, Georgia For this series of show called Homecoming And every year He Goes up on stage And they play their songs And he says like somebody of the effect of like You know I just want to thank All you heathens For coming down here Every year And making this track To come see us and You know like we are so very thankful for all of our successes because there's literally nothing else I can fucking do with my life.
0: <laughs> I'll be doing this in my backyard. If you don't pay me, but please God keep paying me.
1: Yeah. And like, I look at hang Hills, like, like, like I, what the fuck else am I personally going to do with my life? Like, I don't want to work for someone else. I don't want to be a teacher ever again. I take pride in the fact that the beers are the, best that they've literally ever been. And I can say that with full objectivity that we're making the best beers we've ever made in our life. I keep saying we, and I haven't broke away from that, but like the beers are fucking awesome. And I have this vision for something, but I also know that my options in life at age 41, like I'm not going to go work in a cubicle. I'm not going to go work at, I'm not going to go sell beer at Whole Foods. I'm not going to be a teacher again. Like there's literally, I'll just going to get fired.
0: (laughs) Won't work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> like, I, I'm too feral at this point. Like, I, I, I can't do anything else. And some people might call that limiting, but I would say that if you fucking have a thing and you love it, and and, and it's this is ultimately the cheesiest thing I've ever said in my life, but if you love a thing, you got to find a way to make it work for yourself. Yeah. And I fucking love Hanging Hills. Like, I, I don't love the name. It was a name that we kind of all begrudgingly accepted, and I don't love the history of the brand. But at this point, like, through all of the failures and all the setbacks there are these little glimmers of hope that i've been able to glom onto and like that i got nothing else like i fucking love this brewery and that might sound pathetic but i'm like fuck you dude like go work in a cubicle you know go work until go work until you retire doing something that you're just passionate about like i have this thing and i want nothing else and so like i'm willing to do whatever it takes uh short of you know, sucking somebody's dick. Like I am willing to do whatever it takes to make this thing work. Uh, Short of that.
0: We got it on, on video now or on audio. (laughs) I mean, like (laughs) I
1: always use, I always use the example that like
0: every, every like middle-aged rich white guy I know um, wants to retire and own a brewery. Like would you have the dream job? Right. So um, at, at some point they're trying to make enough money so they can invest in somebody else to do it. (laughs) And it's not going to work for them. So if you know how to make the beer, you understand the marketing and the the finance side, and maybe you only understand it now based on doing it wrong the first time, but that doesn't matter why. Now, you know, you're, you're living the retirement plan of most people that I've met. So
1: I'm never going to be a big rich brewery and and I've accepted that, you know, like I'm never going to be, I'm never going to make as much beer in a year as Treehouse has to dump in a day before it goes to the canning line. Mm -hmm. Like in that, but I'm okay with that. Like what the? Like what else? Like fuck that. Why would I want to do what they do anyway? They've already they've already done it.
0: Yeah, it's boring now. So I do have a question. You you mentioned that uh, <laughs> Hanging Hills is not your favorite name, but that's what you've got. So there were two different times that I thought about completely rebranding my brewery, like renaming it, starting over, bankrupting the old company effectively, but not really, just something my wife and I. But why hang on to the name if you're going to completely reinvent the model, reinvent the beer? Why hanging on to the name at that point?
1: I mean, to go back to no the pun intended. Trucker, but yeah, to go yeah hanging hanging on to the name to go back to the drive by truckers analogy. It's a it's a world class shitty name for a band, and and actually I can go Patterson with that. Yeah. Hood, <laughs> Patterson Hood has been quoted as saying, "I take a lot of." Cue from my heroes and usually they're rock stars but he has said that he's you know considered changing the name but at this point the name is not his anymore it's other people's and so do i, I change the name change it to something hip and cool and you know sellable and then what i got to build a brand like i look what jacks abby tried to do jacks Abbey has this really incredible logger facility they're one of the best logger producers in the united states and then they tried to open up they'd st- they're still open i shouldn't say tried they opened up springdale which is their ale production where they're doing hazies and really great barrel aged stuff i think stuff you'd appreciate and the success between jacks Abbey and springdale didn't translate necessarily like they're they're still making more beer than i am but it has been a struggle you know like it the, like it's not taken hold of the market by any measure I have to wonder, like, you know, should Jack's have just put out all the Springdale beer under Jack's Abbey? You know, have they just should they just consider to make lagers? I, I don't really know what that calculus is, but all I know is that rebranding doesn't necessarily translate to immediate success. And then I am starting over and I don't think I'm personally famous enough to start over and, and generate interest in what I have to do. Joe's new brew. Come and get it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. As a matter of fact, if people Google search me, they'll be like, "That guy's an asshole."
0: <laughs> yeah, no, he's the dude who got in a fight on the uh, internet.
1: I have Hang Hills, and that's mine. And so I'm gonna make it my baby with the ugly name, and I'm okay with that.
0: So, with the new plan, you mentioned you were yep. still gonna distribute. Uh, I assume that means not self-distribute.
1: Yeah, I don't self-distribute. Thankfully, I'm uh, saving my my knees and back for later days of my life. How you plan to crack that nut with you know
0: your distributor? coming back into it. And obviously that was a struggle in the beginning. And you you talked about 14% year over year for July. What do you know about distribution that the next generation needs to know?
1: My God, what don't I know? A a recent brand just uh, started contracting at the same facility that I'm at. And they had exclusively sold beer at their own facility up until a couple months ago. And the owner has asked, like do you have to stay on top of your distributors every fucking day to sell your beer is this what it's like to distribute beer i would say like your to anybody who's looking to start a new brewery your distributors are not necessarily working for you they're working for their own margins and that you are responsible for checking in on them on a daily if you're not checking in on them weekly they're just going to bury your beer in a warehouse and then they're going to charge you to destroy that beer or they're going to sell it to some discount place and you're still going to pay for the difference in that sale if you're not staying on top of them you're going to lose there's just no way to go about it and that also they're not really selling your beer so much as moving it from your your brewery to their warehouse to the accounts like if it doesn't sell itself they're not going to put a lot of effort into moving it and that's just the nature of the beast. And that's every – you can uh, you can talk about the largest distributors in the, in the country, and you can talk about the smallest ones. And each one of them will move beer up to a point, or sell beer up to a point. But after a while, they're just going to move on to the next pretty shiny thing. They'll they'll tell you all of the things that you want to hear, and then they'll tell you why your beer isn't selling while they're still acquiring new brands. That um, make similar products. That makes <gasps> <laughs> or brands that are that are not beer and taking up cooler space next to what used to be only craft beer. Now uh, there's some F M B slash R T D slash seltzer products that, that they are now pushing heavily. And watching kombucha take my shelf space was like, Thanks, distributor.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's thank crazy. you for that. That's that's all like my, my local distributor here in town, that had, they were one of the better distributors for me, but at the end of the day, they're there to sell what sells. All of their most recent posts have been Seltzer oriented. Like everything they're pushing and promoting, and you know, I don't, it doesn't matter to me now, but it also still matters to me. Like I, it's, it's a broader picture of the industry
1: and it sucks. It's- their reality is that they have very, like they're taking 30%, but that 30%, when you break it down, it doesn't leave much for profit. It
0: really doesn't. And actually it, when you read further down in the book, like one of the things you'll find is I break down the self distribution model and how little there is per hundred thousand dollars worth of sales to actually run distribution. Like they, they have to hit such large numbers that they can't do it with two brands. They've They've got to have 15 and they've got to have a variety of products. And at that point, they get spread out. Their headspace gets broken up. And I just don't know how it would work, to be honest. I don't, I just don't, I can't figure out the model that makes sense, so.
1: And the self-distribution is interesting because a lot, we're, you know, we're able to do that here in Connecticut. And the amount of energy and resources that requires is not small. No, Um, you got to get a truck, a person, a line cleaner. If you get successful, you have to get another truck. Mm -hmm. And then you got to get another person. And then in COVID, a lot of people were moving Uh, tasting room staff into delivery staff, which, you know, like now they got two people in the truck and they've got another truck. And like now they're moving exclusively through the channels to to sell their beer because they weren't selling it in their tasting rooms. And like, you know, every one of those things is another cut to your bottom line. What I will say about self-distribution, the one thing that is 100% a perk about it is that you will outsell a distributor 10 to 1, 15 to 1. You'll crush them. 100% of the time. It's not even going to be close. And you're going to get floor stacks that they're not going to fight for. You're going to move your beer into better sight lines in the cooler. You're going to develop relationships that because you have 50 to 75, maybe 100 accounts, you can manage way better than a company that, has accounts across the entire state and also a catalog of, you know, a thousand products or whatever it is that they're carrying, you will sell your beer better. And so like, if you can figure out a way to not pay yourself forever, you will, you will show self-distribution as a profitable model. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but like, if you want to sell your beer, you have to be, you have to be out there as a, as a business owner. And that once, once you stop doing that, you're, it's it's like death by a thousand cuts with your distributor. They're just not going to do. It. Even the most beloved distributor, if it doesn't move itself, they're not moving it.
0: Yeah, at least occasionally get the wins, and that's and that's part of the the rep itself. So we ran into that where like a rep loves me and they do great, and then if I don't go there for six months, they forget me because the next rep was there nine times, and and you, you just. It's a it's a constant battle, but so one question, did you get to restructure your distribution deals after the ownership structure changed or did you basically have the same distributors now that you did before?
1: So, we fired the the distributor in the south southern part of the state in 2019 and then we sold our self distribution footprint to uh, the distributor who has my beer across the whole state now. So I'm worth, I'm only with one distributor, Craft Guild of Connecticut, who I have a really good relationship with. I, yeah, I love their team. I love the people who work in the office, but I love them like a dad who's looking over the, his kids all the time. You know, like yeah. it's like, I, I have a good relationship with them because I have to check in all of the time and I have to make sure that products are uploaded into their catalog and that they're turned on for their reps to sell. But to answer your question, the only thing we did was once I sold that southern part of the state, I just moved all of the beer through this one company, which, you know, they, they're they going to move about 1,000 barrels of beer for me, just under 1,000 barrels of beer for me this year, and hopefully 1,100 next year. So, no, I didn't restructure, but I just developed a tighter relationship now that I'm not managing a tasting room and also distributing our own products.
0: So, obviously, that would be one of the answers, but in, in the farewell address you guys did in March, to, uh, March 20th, I believe, you, one of the things they mentioned was that I don't know if it was you that wrote it or one of the other guys, but that the oh, distrib- it was not me, they wouldn't let me write it. So, they, they said that one of their big reasons with the distribution pipeline, quote unquote, shut down. And so, what, did, what does that mean? And then, I guess, more importantly, how did that change? Because if it's the same distributor, you've kind of figured it out this year.
1: Well, I don't know what the fuck they were talking about, so I can't answer that question. They had taken the social they had taken the, all the social media passwords away from me because of the andy go thing probably rightfully so to be honest with you <laughs> so anything that was posted on social media after january 20th of 2020 i had no control over i at one point one of our investors had asked me to write the farewell message and then i did and they said we're not posting that and so they posted something i don't know what the fuck was written to be honest with you i can't answer that question Sorry, I, I don't know what that means. I, I think that what they were trying to say was that they, my guess, if I was in their head, was that were, the whole state was getting closed down. There was no way for us to move beer. There's no draft sales. And then we didn't have a tasting room to sell beer. I, it's an unclear message, and I would have not have even brought up distribution as a, as a way, as an excuse to close down the shop. I would have talked about a million other things, but not the distribution model.
0: Well, one of the, it's going to be interesting. One of the things that I'm doing is collecting all of these uh, farewell announcements, um, cause everyone's, everyone's full of shit. One, <laughs> one, one of my favorites is, uh, it, and there's going to be a bunch, I'm sure, but there's a brewery here in Texas called Hops and Green, um, or was, I guess you could make the argument. They literally closed, I'm trying to think of the date now and I don't recall, but long story short, they closed after COVID started because they were primarily a uh, package. They relied very heavily on package sales at retail. And during COVID, that just didn't happen, which is an absolute lie. During COVID, <laughs> everybody in that Texas is... that was in package fucking killed it, including us. Like, we did fantastic. But
1: Yeah, I that's a bunch of shit. I, my initial contract partner, I won't say them by name on here, but if you look it up, you can figure out who it is, was producing the worst beer that Hanging Hills had ever put out. And when I would have conversations with them about quality controls, uh, they would just look at me like I had five heads. <laughs> but I didn't at the time I didn't have much of a choice. It was like a financial decision. But even with that said, I was producing thirty barrels a week, almost exclusively in cans. There may have been like ten kegs for the entire eight months I was with them. And every single batch, every single drop of beer sold. And it was not the best. I would it was bad beer. I would argue that it was I should have gone on a business because of that and not because of anything we did at Ledyard Street. <laughs> and so it's still sold because people were sitting at home with nothing to fucking do and drinking. The only place they could go to was the grocery store and the package store. Like, fuck you. That's a lie. Don't lie. Right. No, it's bad. I, that's not the
0: only guy who's ever done it. So please don't think that josh is the only dipshit in the crappier industry but he's but that's putting
1: the onus on the consumer and not mistakes that you might have made that led you there
0: right and he made plenty and some that weren't his fault but yeah so anyways i i can't stand that kind of shit where you're just disingenuous and it just bugs me and so i'm taking this opportunity to call him out and he also has not responded to requests to join the show because he doesn't think he's out of business yet which is ridiculous (laughs) he's not out of business for a fucking year we're all holding on to the dream yeah, no, and more power to them. I do hope everybody reopens and is a millionaire. I, 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 by no stretch of the imagination do I want people to fail, but the uh, w- whatever. There's that. All right, so let's take a very quick break, and then i I can't get out, I can't let you get out of here without reading some of your Facebook and and uh, Untapped reviews because I hate Hi. all of those, and um, they're fun for me. So we're we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna read those, and I'm gonna let you get on with whatever in the fuck you want to do other than talk to me all day. So we'll be right back. So hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type brewerydirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, thanks for sticking in with me. I appreciate the uh, commitment. I it's It's been fun and I, I really enjoy it so far. So I failed to mention earlier that I had poured a water tower, which means that I probably need you to tell me what it is or tell the listeners what it is so that um, I'm not the only one enjoying
1: it. Water tower is a kettle sour. It's a brilliant advice made in the nouveau American way of kettle souring with a healthy amount of fermentation added fruit. So this is not an exploding can beer. Just want to throw that disclaimer <laughs> out there. Hey, mine did not uh, explode the one at all. <laughs> so it's a raspberry. The one you're drinking is raspberry. It's a rotating sour series. And the, the idea behind that beer was that when I was in high school, the only I grew up in a small town. 100, I graduated with hundred kids, way upstate New York. The only place to drink and not get busted by the cops was on top of a water tower. <laughs> uh, you could see him coming <laughs> and throw it up. <laughs> well, but, I mean, you could just be loud. Nobody was going to hear you, and it was like you know, so you just had to make sure that when you're climbing the ladder that you there was like a there was like a, a chain that had a padlock that was never locked, and you just had to rattle the chain in case somebody was getting laid up there so that they could quickly put their clothes back on while you're coming up. But we would have small parties that just hang out and sit on top of the water tower and drink. And that I wanted to capture like that little essence of summer or like youthful indiscretion in a beer, and that's what that beer is.
0: <laughs> youthful indiscretion. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's, it's great. Very refreshing. It Obviously, there's no off flavors I would originally tell you off the bat. I would have not Thanks. told you I was drinking it had it had baby diaper <laughs> or any of the um, throw up. YouTube it doesn't. Acid. Yeah, it's great. I like it. Uh, the raspberry is just there enough. Like you don't get all the tannins of the, of the skins where it's just able to be refreshing and fun and a little bit acidic. It's great.
1: I actually think that all raspberry fruited sours kind of have a little farty quality to them. I think it's just a product of the fruit. I've never had one that didn't have a little bit of fart in the nose, but that one is very minimal and maybe just because I'm sensitive to, to sulfur in any way. And, uh, but, um, that, that one, that beer, it's not my favorite style of beer, but that one came out really well for us. And and I think we really dialed in on something there.
0: Yeah. That's one of those, like, in general, I'm not a like kettle sour fan only because of the, traditional aspect of whatever and and just me being a fucking douchebag but i like the sour flavor i like the light body and i like the fruit Um, and i actually did experiment with making one similar to this and that's where i turned my head around but conceptually in the beginning i was anti kettle sour forever but there were a bunch and and actually there's a guy that has a all kettle sour brewery in austin who's a dick and that was part of (laughs) it he ruined it for me so i appreciate you making a beer that can help bring me back to where i don't hate all kettle sours anymore
1: um, I mean, there is that little bit of, I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that there's a, a traditionalist in, in you, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, yes, that, but yeah. that wishes that you could sour. Uh, if you're going to sour with lacto, it would either be on a fermentation side in stainless or uh, later on in post fermentation barrel. I'm with you 100%. Uh, it, there's a little part of me that's like, <sighs> I don't get embarrassed by much, but that there's a little tiny bit of like old school brewer me that like slightly embarrassed to see that beer, that beer on the shelf with a hang Hills label on it, because it is definitely like a cave to the market with that said, it's pretty fucking good. Well, and it's, it's
0: not sweet. So the ones I truly hate are the ones that don't use a yeast that dries out enough. Cause obviously mixed culture is my paradigm. And so I, I want it dry and funky and whatever I can take the funky out. I'm cool with that. As long as it's mostly dry and has some uh, acidity to it, and you've got mostly dry with acidity. So that works. So
1: yeah. Actually, the folks, that there's that brewery in Indiana started, I'm trying to think of what their name is right now. I'm blanking, but they do all kettle soured. They've since moved on to, you know, wild funk and shit like that, but um, they're really good. I'm going to, I'm going to have to email you the name because I know that they're distributing in Louisiana. I'd had it in, in New Orleans a few times, but they're based out of Indiana. And they're, like you said, there's only a couple of people who really do it and nail it. Because it's too easy to make it a sweet, gloopy mess. Yeah, well, and that's uh, what the consumer tends to want. <laughs> so, wow.
0: Fuck you, consumer. <laughs> it's your fault. No, whatever, I'm sorry. I actually will be in New Orleans next week. So please email me that. And uh, if they have it there, I'll pick some up. So.
1: I fucking love New Orleans. That's America's best city. Yeah. No, my
0: wife likes to make fun of me. I didn't meet my biological father until I was actually, I did meet him until four years ago. And we were in New Orleans early on and spent a lot of time in Louisiana working. And I told her one day, I'm like, I'm, I haven't met him yet, but I guarantee he's from Louisiana because this is my fucking home. Like, these are my people. Uh, <laughs> turns out he's not at all, but yeah.
1: <laughs> so now she makes fun of me. Just turns out, just turns out, you just, you just love to drink on the street and not get in trouble for it for
0: no reason, right? And it can be ten in the morning, and then I'm just gonna have a po' boy, and I can, I don't, I just the whole concept of. It, I like the whole state though. Like I lived in Lafayette for a while. Spend time in Appaloosa. It's like I'm just, I've, I've had. It, I love the whole fucking state. So
1: I love, I love Louisiana too. Big shout out to that state. You
0: guys know how to live and and somehow balance it, which is crazy. But I know. God bless them. So now that we've said something nice about somebody, let's say something mean about somebody <laughs> because I've just gone too long being nice. Anyway, so I did want to get to mistake nine in my book. Was you alluded to earlier. Uh, give every fuck you have about online beer reviews. And I was that problem. I cared too much about what I read on the internet. And a lot of that's just insecurity. And a lot of that was just the fact that I'm an artist making artistic products. I, I make a pilsner in a can. Like I spent a lot of time tweaking and aging and had patience. And so at some point I got I got really annoyed that people would talk shit about my products. So anyways, how did you handle and, and we know at the end how you handle um, online stuff with uh, what, the homeboy with 300,000 people. But how did you handle untapped? How did you handle those things? And was that your job or was it one of the other guys?
1: It was largely my job. Nobody wanted to do it, you know, for all the reasons you just said. So I did it kind of begrudgingly, and I would only monitor it kind of casually on a peripheral because when I did read it, it would make me so irrationally angry To see what these fucking assholes had to say about something that like spent like we spent months coming up with these products like months And, and like you don't like it. That's fine. You don't I don't want you to like everything that I do. But like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Go shave your neck beard, leave your mom's basement and fucking sell off your your secondary cancel beer shit and fucking go live a little while because you're just being an asshole to somebody who's actually producing something and you're just on, you're online. Fuck off, you're online. At the end of the day, you're doing nothing. Did you have a policy at all about like responding
0: to these? Because now you can, you could respond untapped. I assume you still can. Even Yelp, Chip Advisor, Google. I think you respond on all of these, but.
1: Sometimes I did. Like if they were particularly egregious, I would say shit. Like, you know, I don't remember exactly the things I would say, but man, there was one. If you were, such an asshole that i felt like you deserved a particular shout out i would screen paste it block out the person's name and then be like i would share it on our social media like don't be this person <laughs> like <laughs> i did that twice uh, but that's all i only did, only did it twice so yeah I, I i generally speaking people are their worst selves online and so i tried not to take it too personally but it's really impossible sometimes yeah, so, so to that extent, let, let's uh, let's read a few or I'll read a few and then
0: I'm going to ask <laughs> you to comment on a few because this is one of the things that I'm, I don't know if my audience will be disappointed or impressed about the fact that I'm, I'm growing up a little bit in the sense that when I began this, I absolutely was very viscerally angry and I'm getting over that to an extent where I understand they're just douchebags talking and I happen to be listening and it's my fault for listening. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. But anyways... Here's a good example of a couple of that, as an artist, how do you how do you figure out how to deal with this from the perspective of like what how does my business move forward? Right. So untapped, some dick bag named Ko is drinking a Dragonaut, which I don't. Do you make that still? We do, yeah. Okay. So Dragonaut, by Hanging Hills at Sheffield Pub says drain at the pub, drain pour tiny thin crap .25 caps. Don't reply yet. Then. So that was May 7th of 2021. But on February 26th of 2021, uh, JS was drinking the exact same beer from the exact same brewery at the Sitting Duck Tavern. He says, as expected, smooth, dark, satisfying four caps. These literally could not be more different, right? Like they're, they, they cancel themselves out in the sense of like, this guy hates it, this guy loves it. And both descriptions are opposite of one another. Tiny, thin, and crap. Smooth, dark, and okay. satisfying. How do you how do you even like read those
1: and then go, "Hey, should we make any pl- changes on the production side?" Well, I know the, Dragonaut, A couple of things about Dragonaut. One, that's an oatmeal stout with about twenty. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it's like twenty percent flaked and uh, Canadian. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, golden naked oats. So I know for a fact it's not thin. <laughs> like it's like not thin. It can't be thin. It is lowering for you think, right? It's five percent. Yeah. So like having that much adjunct malt in your in a stout just makes it impossible for it to be thin. So I know that the guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. I also know that there are it's not everyone, but there is a group of people who took the Andy Go thing personally, personally, personally. Ah. and then would go on untapped and Yelp. And I've actually was able Yelp was very accommodating until we did a lot of these things. I'd get like users from sweden with uh names like weimar republic 1488 from sweden (laughs) like this is the worst brewery in the world and i'm like you live in stockholm motherfucker like you've never had my beer you lying sack of shit you're just mad because you're a fascist or whatever so i know that that's part of it but then also for the guy who had the quarter cap rating maybe just maybe he's really into like high ABV pastry stouts that are very thick and surfy and his ideal for a stout is not represented by what a, what a dry 5% oatmeal stout looks like. And he, he's just a fucking moron.
0: So I agree with you. And I think that's probably what's going on here. My issue is that when you go to untapped, you now have an aggregate score for that beer that encompasses both of these. So yeah. guy who's not qualified to actually make any opinion whatsoever known to the public, not only did so, but he drug down your score with that stupidity.
1: Oh yeah, I know. So how do you deal with that? And I think everyone deals with it slightly differently. I used to care. <laughs> uh, like the Bob Dylan song, you know, I used to care, but things have changed. What I do now is I remember that Hang Hills went out of business. Uh, we shut down our brick and mortar I spent the last year not making any money and i've done everything i can to keep the company alive and that guy with his low rating probably has never been nearly as passionate about anything as i am about this particular brand and he can go kick rocks that's what i have to say i think that might be the most healthy response to it so i mean i want to be mad but like i i just don't care about that guy anymore like if i'm trying to appease him like I look at Hill's Pills, which I think is scoring a 3.57 on Untappd right now. And then there's a hype Brewery who makes an acetaldehyde laden bullshit pilsner. It tastes like green apple. And it is they claim that it is there. They've spent months developing the recipe. It's all traditional process, all traditional ingredients, and they, you know, they naturally carbonate all this shit, but it tastes like green apple. And that beer, because of who they are as a brand, is scoring like a 4-1 and untapped. And I know for a fact that the people who are scoring me 3.2, 3.4 to drag down the score, are I can look to see what they're scoring that particular beer that they've had. I'm not going to name names. I want to name names, but in this case, I'm not going to. Uh, and they're scoring it like the best Pilsner I ever had in my life, 4.75. And I know that the brewery who puts it out knows that they were putting out a shit product. And it so like there is obviously a disconnect between like what people know about what a Pilsner should be. And I also know that untapped does nothing, literally nothing to weight scores for standard bearers of beers. Like why the fuck is Sierra pale only a three, seven on untapped? Why is Allagash white not a 4.9? It's a perfect fucking beer. And it's because they allow people to score a pastry style that's 11% of five and that style gets bumped up because of it. And then well, allagash white people scored a three and a quarter and it drags it down. And they aren't willing to, un- to, to, to adjust those scores by style. That's not, that's a failure of that company. I think untapped is a pariah, but they're a fucking, they're a leech. And I actually used to get into these long emails with the owner. Cause he's actually local. He's not there anymore. He left the company. Really? And I, would, and I would actually explain to him, like, this is what you're doing wrong. This is why your company's bad. And this is why you're bad for Hanging Hills. And I think that you should reconsider your entire model, if not shut down your company. When I would get really mad, I would tell him to close company. And, but you're in your defense. Sense. They
0: could have fixed it. Had they oh, cared they about creating something? Yeah, no,
1: they could have fixed it. <laughs> I mean, like, everything you need to know about Untapped is evident by their beer festival in North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> Like that was a complete, utter shit show. And they don't actually care about beer. They don't care about consumers drinking beer. They don't care about anything other than aggregating data and accumulating users. They don't. It's just another fucking tech boy, shitty company. They don't care about beer. And so like at the end of the day, how could I possibly, I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about it now, but like <laughs> in my real life, when I'm not on a podcast, how could I possibly give a shit about what untapped has to say? I still have to sell beer. I still have to go door to door. I still have to post about it in, in a prideful way on social media. I still have to talk to my friends about it. Like, I do everything I can on a personal level to just not give a fuck about what Untapped is as a company and how it controls how beers are produced, what beers are produced, and how they're produced. Like, I, I just don't care. I don't have the bandwidth anymore. I might have sound like I do right now when I'm talking to you. I'm just giving you an honest answer like, fuck them. It's never going to get fixed. They're never going to do the right thing. So I actually reached out to them
0: to uh, let them know that I talk shit about them on basically every single podcast and that I would be happy to do an episode where they can justify their existence and tell me why I'm wrong. Because I don't mind being wrong at all. And, and But at the end of the day, like I said, I'm, I'm on the search for truth, not to validate my own personal opinions and uh, they – they not only did they not reply, I sent a follow-up and they didn't reply to that either. So they
1: intentionally have ignored me now. I imagine that even if like good beer hunting – and I'm not trying to disparage your podcast, but like a larger <laughs> podcast with yeah, more maybe. followers. Yeah. I don't think that they – I don't think that they would do that podcast with anyone because I think that they believe their company is valued for what it is despite what it has done to the craft beer industry like you you think they just don't know what kind of douchebags they are no I, well i don't think they know i don't think they think they're douchebags maybe they do i don't i have not met anybody from the company since they've been purchased but i just think that they they make a. I think they think they make a superior app and that's what they're striving to do mm, makes uh, sense yeah not that they're a fucking leech on an industry that actually produces something
0: well they are so there's that <laughs> <I know. laughs> All right. Actually, before we move off untapped completely, I do have one other question. Have, so when you were self-distributed, did you ever have a account that would look at untapped ratings as a validation for whether they would purchase and retail oh. your beer?
1: I never had anybody tell me to my face, but I can also look at draft lists and shelf space and know that that's the decision they're making. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think anybody's willing to... Not, I've heard that. I've heard people say that they've been told that. Nobody's ever told me that to my face, but I can just look and be like, dude, you only have 4.0 beers on your fucking draft list. Why? Like, like are you just not going to put Allagash White on draft? Right, because this <laughs> like... doesn't meet the cut.
0: <laughs> I've actually had my least favorite is I've had a retailer sample a beer that I told them comes out in two weeks and pulled up the app looked at the reviews and said, well, there's no reviews for it. Like, what? I look behind me. I'm like, well, uh, it does, it's not out yet, fuckwad. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I just wanted to see what everybody thought of it. Like, I just told you you're the first person to tell me what you think of it. I, that kind of I just can't
1: handle it. I, 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 would, also, I would always struggle with, like, I, I think what really got me early on, especially when we started really tightening up what we were doing. And when I say tightening up, we were always made, really good, clean beer. Our beer only got better over time. But then when we started giving people what we thought they wanted, I would drink my beer as objectively as I could at festivals and then go around. And there was obviously brewers making world-class beer at these festivals. But then there were others who were making just, like you were describing, like hop burn, throaty, gross chlorophyll messes, and that would have 4.5 on untapped. And that would validate my theory that, like, untapped didn't matter. Like, it matters in terms of sales, but like, untapped doesn't matter. Doesn't validate. It's not accurate. I yeah. Knew- I knew my beer was good. I'm proud of what I do. But it's like having your PhD thesis graded by a kindergartner. <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. When I release this episode, it's probably going to be like number 20 or 21. And that might be the most succinct description of Untapped that I have heard yet. (laughs) I may actually quote you at some point from now. That's awesome. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So I got one more review to read. It's not an Untapped one. This is from July of last year. And it says, this place is kind of dirty and the beer was eh. Nothing about this place makes me want to come back. If you are looking for a 5 out of 10 experience, go here. If it's close by, why not? Go somewhere else if it takes you more than 10 to 15 minutes to get here. And I don't need you to give me your response, because I'm pretty sure you wrote this one. (laughs) You wrote the response. as, says, hello, person. Thank you for taking the time to post this review 20 minutes ago on June 13, 2021. As of March 12, 2020, Hanging Hills closed our tasting room and brewery. Even if you earnestly believe these criticisms to be fair and true and kept this review written on a napkin and carried it around in your wallet for over 400 days, like your Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction, assumedly meaning the watch up your ass, I assume... You didn't put that by. That's mine. I wonder if it says more about you than it does about Hanging Hills, that you would post a negative review of any service industry business after the year we all went through. I hope you find a modicum of grace during your days, more than you've chosen to share here, because this ain't it, chief. And I would just like to share... Based on what you said happened and the shit you went through uh, right before you closed, that was a much more mature and well-put-together answer. You, you still called the guy an asshole, but you did it in a much better way. That, not bad. Kudos to you. He deserved
1: that. Uh, I, 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 uh, I shared that on, on Twitter, I think, uh, through the company account. Because I, I also saw a, a lot of people getting like bad Yelp reviews. That, that weren't you know like other companies are getting bad yelp reviews for like service being slow or like i don't know what the fuck people like expect from humans right now like it's, yeah. it's not pretty being in the world and then like you know their napkin wasn't folded properly and they go on yelp and they bitch about it as if it's the end of the world and like quite frankly like have some grace when you're going out there like treat people with respect and like this person to me sounded like they were i thought Making shit up because they posted it 400 days after we closed. Like they didn't. There's no fucking way that they kept that review stored away somewhere on a on a fucking iPhone note, waiting to share it with the world as if it mattered. I thought that they were making it up for other reasons. Like I still get hate mail for the Andy Go incident. Some dude. This one actually really bothered me, and I'm gonna share it with you. But it it bothered me enough that I, I thought about it for a day. Somebody somehow got my cell phone number. Wow. They took a video of themselves taking a piss in a toilet that they had labeled the back of with a heartbeat double IPA label. There's no commentary. There's no discussion. It's just the camera zooms in on the label and then the piss commences. And they sent it to me via text. And so I did respond to that person. I'm like, you know, with a little bit of elbow grease, you can really get that toilet grub off. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I still get shit from people on a regular basis. So I know that there's still some lingering hatred for the brand for saying something mean to an internet personality. But on the the other side of that is, again, people out there work busting their asses, trying not to get sick, trying to, you know, navigate a world which isn't always the friendliest place. And then you go on Yelp and review about it like you're some expert that you have any idea of what it's like to own a business. Or to, you know, be somebody who's struggling uh, in a business. And, and then you go and do that and just like, like, fuck off. You know, fall down a hole. Like, do anything other than go on a, go online and bitch about somebody's service industry. And especially that particular person who waited 400 days to post it.
0: And it clearly wasn't accurate. They weren't there that weekend or whatever. Yeah.
1: They weren't there. <laughs> they were just holding on to it. Just like the guy who's pissing on the toilet. It like he, he, they, they're holding on to something because their lives aren't validated in other ways. And like, quite frankly, sometimes I get it. I'm, I'm mad. I'm still mad at Kenny Rogers for uh, walking in Andrew Jones uh, for the game-winning walk in the NLCS in 1999. Still holding on to that. <laughs> so, still holding on to that one.
0: Yeah, but you're not but, fucking uh, going on his personal Facebook or sending him a text at his mom's house. Like, come on, that's a little different. No,
1: I would. No, but you know, like, I actually salute the guy now. Like, I like Kenny Rogers but uh, like i like i said like just don't you have the choice to do something terrible or not do it just don't do the terrible thing especially the service industry people yeah so
0: they're doing the best they can stuff it's, it's really not fair especially not in that situation it's like,
1: you're you're selling people are selling a percentage of what they were selling pre-covid right now they can't staff they can't find people to work for many valid reasons and many invalid reasons, you know, like there's a whole world out there of service injury people who are struggling just to keep their businesses afloat. And you just took the time out of your day to say something nasty instead of like, I don't know, going to their business more and helping them have more money so that they can improve their service. It says more about you as a person than it does any poor service you've ever received in your life. I agree.
0: Well, and I hope it offers you maybe a little bit of, catharsis to know that i actually have an untapped check-in in the world uh less than a year ago that just said half a star the owner's an asshole <laughs> that's it that's all i
1: got <laughs> you know what though i would print that shit out and get it right <laughs> yeah you
0: know, I, I did consider it a badge of honor but at the end of the day like they,
1: they hate us because they ain't us whatever i don't care it doesn't matter yeah. why they hate us but i know i it's just kind of like a it is a bizarre world where people are just like i hate that person i've never met
0: Well, and and I can say, in in all fairness, I have tasted four of your beers, and they are not bad beers. They're they're good. And so, and and like I've been very clear, there are a lot of them that I don't like out in the world. These aren't those. So, I don't think a lot of these things make any sense. So, at some point, if you're going to run your business, run your business. Ignore these motherfuckers and move on. So.
1: Did you drink uh, Did you drink Pumpkin the Bear? I sent that one down there specifically for you.
0: I was, I was going to open with that one today and decided that I wanted to do the West Coast IPA instead. So I have that one still, and I have the double IPA. I had two on the other night, but I did not have the double IPA yet. And the triple. I think I have those two left.
1: That, uh, that Pumpkin the Bear, it's a fully Reinhuskabot conforming uh, Doppelbach. Smoked a Rausch beer Doppelbach. Um, except then I threw some, threw some spump, uh, smoked pumpkin meat in the mash, but it is not a spiced pumpkin beer. It's not sweet and it tastes nothing like pumpkin. The pumpkin's purely a gimmick for huh? the ball. And, and I don't, and I'm, I'm fine saying that out loud, but, uh, but <laughs> the beer is fucking, I would like it's spot the fuck on. And if you tell yourself there's pumpkin in it, there's pumpkin in it. But if you, if you accuse me of not putting pumpkin spice flavor in there, well, you're absolutely correct.
0: All right. So I, my mother's coming over for Christmas uh, tonight and I am making chili and I think that'd be the perfect pairing yeah. for chili. So I will open it tonight and uh, send you a message. Like so, all right. And I'll send you Hills pills down uh, when we package in a couple weeks. I appreciate that. I would love to try it. So a couple more questions before you go and then I'm done. Uh, we are done with all the untapped and all the uh, online stuff. But I do want to ask you one of my favorite questions. How has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? Uh, and I say that as a guy who was – truly had some alcoholism issue and i still do but uh, it it was tough for me to separate the job and the passion of not drinking all day basically and so i've enjoyed the last three months when i haven't been a brewery owner because i have dried out somewhat but i'm curious yes. what your relationship was like how has that affected how has ready Al- access to alcohol and the forcing of you having to drink it to be able to taste it before it goes to a distributor affected your relationship to alcohol
1: um, that's a, it's a pretty loaded question. I was only drunk in my own pub twice. And uh, the four years we were open. I'll share that one of those two stories for another episode. But I always, this is this is like the, the recovering teacher in me. I always try to set a good example for my employees by not being drunk or over imbibing, not to sound like a teetotaler or anything, because I definitely had beers. But I did feel like some I, f- I felt like an in- internal drive not to be a drunk in front of my employees. So it actually kind of came with a little bit of responsibility just from uh, the nature of being a boss. Funnily enough, people thought that I was drunk a lot. And, and there particularly like three or four accounts because I called them out for some bullshit. <laughs> and, and they're like, why are you emailing us when you're drunk? And I'm like, dude, I'm stone sober. Like, I'm just saying this because I'm mad. (laughs) Because you're an asshole. This is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not drunk right now. And like, thank you for accusing me of that. That's awesome. So uh, what it did change, though, the the big thing that I saw, uh, without getting too high in a soapbox, how much this industry runs on substance abuse. And like, there are accounts that get mad at you if you're not in their place drinking on a regular basis. They won't buy from you uh, in some cases. Yes. And I have two kids. I have a wife. And if I drank at their businesses as often as they wanted me to, I wouldn't have either one of those those things. And then I see sales reps for other brands, and they're all much more successful than Hanging Hills. And I know that there's more to it than just this. But on their social media feeds, they're drinking every fucking day and it's like not just a beer it's like you know five six beers at various accounts and they're bouncing around and i'm like well how are you getting back and forth and i'm like asking all these questions to myself and so there is this little part of the industry it's not even little it's large and we don't really talk about it enough that i try to personally avoid now with that said i drink somewhere in the ballpark of seven to eleven on a really really bad week i'll have eleven beers but most parts I'm under seven. Most weeks, I'm under seven drinks. And I don't know where that falls in the spectrum, but every single one of them is like we put our kids down. I'm watching TV with my wife and I'm having a beer. And I've come to a place where I've accepted that that's what I'm going to drink probably for the rest of my life. (laughs) So it has changed my relationship to like what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I'm okay with what I consume at this point in my life good
0: as long as you figure out something that works for you and it's functional that's the point right
1: yeah i mean like it's drinking seven beers a week alcoholism probably i mean i don't know what i go with <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 mean, like,
0: I i had heard the I'm definition scared. of alcoholism is drinking to get drunk and so if you have one or two beers at the end of the night i've also heard the argument that there is no such thing as alcoholism that that was a teetotal and, and, and who knows not the point well
1: but. I've, I've heard <laughs> habitual alcohol consumption regardless of how much you're drinking like i've heard the various things you know like if you're having five beers a night you're an alcoholic if you're having one beer every single day for your life you're an alcoholic so i've heard both sides of that and I, I, again it goes to i'm willing to accept this level in my body i am a good dad i'm a good husband <laughs> i try to be I try to stay on top of the things in my house that need fixed. I have, you know, a business I'm subbing part-time to make money. I'm able to do all of those things. And that one beer might be the only thing that is guaranteed to bring me joy throughout the day (laughs) that isn't related to my kids or my wife,
0: you know? Yeah. A lot of responsibility and work and that's your time to get away.
1: Yeah, exactly. So Quite frankly, I'm okay with that with myself, and I hope that other people accept that about themselves, too. The industry is is rife with alcoholism. We don't talk about it a lot, but it is.
0: And yeah, Unfortunately, you see it a lot, or we do, anyway, as being behind the scenes, but yeah. Speaking of which, so if a guy wants to open a brewery, what are you going to tell him, yes or no? You don't get to say anything else, yes or no?
1: I'm going to say do it. <laughs> okay. I mean, it would go against – it would be anti-ethical for me to say don't do it, because if you believe in something, you should do it.
0: Click yeah, So enough. do it, you know? So after you closed, you didn't make any Facebook posts for seven months. And then at that point, you had new plans, you were contract brewing, you had new designs for your cans, and you made the comment on Facebook, we closed the doors a million years ago in March, but I'll be damned if I give in to failure. Failure happens. Giving in is a choice. Do you still feel that that was failure? Or do you think that that was a transitional learning situation?
1: Oh, it was failure. It sucks. It sucks. I mean, like, if I accepted it any other way, it would probably be denial. But, like, we failed in every... There wasn't a single part of Hang Hills. Those first four years where I could routinely hang my hat on as being a success, and then we closed. So, that, to me, is the definition of failure. But, you know, like, if you're going to run away from the fucking failure, uh, you're going to be running away from things your entire life. Because that is, I mean, like, you fail every fucking day of your life. So... I I would say it's a failure, but uh, I didn't give in to the failure. Eat shit, failure. Well, I do uh,
0: absolutely wish you the best, and I hope that the new business model turns things around. Uh, Again, I think you're making great beer. Continue to do that. Um, You have a you have a good plan. You have a good head and shoulders. And I personally believe that once you have failed, you are then educated in a way no one else is to hopefully do it the right way. Yeah, and I look forward if if you're into it. You know, years from now, you may come back and, and do a podcast episode telling about how everything I've ever said was wrong and you figured out the way to do it, right? I'm <laughs> um, I, I very forward to that. So
1: I got to say, I feel very comfortable being on your podcast. And I, you had said before that I if, I, if I felt uncomfortable with anything that I said, I could edit it out. But quite frankly, I I think you are pretty good at your job and you make it so that being honest is okay. So thank you for that.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate you, that you were able to do that. And I think that we... Not only had fun today, and I got to taste some beers, that's always a great day, but we have created content that new and potential brewery owners can learn from forever. So that's awesome, and I'm glad you were able to share it. Cheers, brother. Cheers. way I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book, which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, Make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play.
1: Media. Media.